with my glasses at home. We'll see how that goes reading notes. I want to thank everyone for being out here tonight. Thank you so much. I know uh, it's an encouragement to the group here and definitely an encouragement to me. We have quite a few folks that have traveled over an hour to be here. Thank you for your sacrifice on the beginning of a week um, to do that. And I'm seeing a lot of smiles from that. So thank you. I think your job has been accomplished. Good job. And for, uh, for those who have already heard me teach for an hour and a half today, I'm sorry. You're just a glutton for punishment, and that's on you. Um, good to see Bill and Camelia. It's been too long. Thank you guys for being here. Last night, not last night, but yesterday morning, uh, we started a series going through Hebrews chapter 11. And so we started during the Bible class hour just talking about general lessons on faith. What are some general principles of faith? And we made seven or eight points, and I'll review just a, a couple of those because they're going to be pertinent every night for the rest of the week. We made the point that faith is a response to God and his promises. God speaks, and because of who he is, we listen and hear and respond when God speaks. It's Faith is letting an amazing God work in imperfect people. You don't have to be perfect to live a life of faith. There are a lot of people that look at those names through Hebrews 11 and they're really intimidated because they just think, wow, Abraham, who can live like Abraham? Or Noah, the one we're going to talk about tonight, who can be a Noah? But when you understand the, that they're just human, flawed humans at that, the only perfect person was Jesus, then you realize God was at work in an, in an imperfect person's life. And so that means he can be at work in your life as well. And the text makes the point as you look at this swath of history that faith is needed for every person in every era of history, including ours. It is, that has not changed. Now, what faith looks like, what faith does may change during the dispensation. And we made the point, you know, what God called Abraham to do is not what he called Moses to do. And it's not what he calls me to do. I don't have to go offering little lambs and goats. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, I have some friends that run a butcher shop, and they'd be all right with that. Um, I would wrestle with that. God calls me to do something different, but it still requires faith, the same faith that it was required of them. The outcomes of faith are vastly different. You know, the physical outcomes of demonstrating your faith is different. And the, the example that we gave is if you listen to some denominational preachers or watch the television and listen to their messages, you would think that if you just put your faith in God, everything's going to be great. You know, the earthly outcomes of your faith are just going to make life easy. And if you are just honest and pay attention in Hebrews 11, that is not true. Uh, as a matter of fact, let's make that point a little bit stronger. Hebrews chapter 11. And when you get down to verse 32, the writer says this. What more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Oh, their faith led them to torture. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. And my wife had my glasses. 
37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. And the point that we made is living a life of faith here can result in difficult circumstances, but it's a life that's pleasing to God. So we need to understand that faith can have a variety of immediate outcomes, but faith lives in confidence of the future. It's living proof of the invisible, and faith is the only way to be pleasing to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. So we made all of those points, and then the rest of this week, tonight, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night, Lord willing, we're going to look at different examples of the lives within Hebrews 11. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to zero in on verse 7. We're going to zero in on verse 7 and talk about Noah. Okay? And to do Noah justice, you need to put a bookmark in Hebrews 11, and we need to go back to Genesis chapter 6. So we're going to look at the context of Noah's life and then go back to Hebrews where this verse summarizes that life. So we talked a little bit about creation and God being the God of creation over the course of the weekend, the power that he demonstrated. He's created everything. Adam and Eve have sinned. They've been cast out of the garden. You have Cain and Abel. Abel has offered a sacrifice by faith. Cain did not. Cain killed the one who had been faithful to God. And then it keeps tracking the descendants, and things just keep getting worse. Things just keep getting worse. And so when you get to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And if you want to, just a couple of verses to look at for more clarification on why that was a bad thing. Okay, 2 Peter 2, 4, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, Jude 6 and 7, all three of those New Testament passages, and I'll cite them again, 2 Peter 2, 4, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, and Jude 6 and 7, all three of those passages have some kind of reference back to this moment. And it talks about sensuality, it talks about immorality. And one of them very explicitly says something about spirits. The, the idea is this. There are a couple of possibilities at what's going wrong in verses 1 and 2. Some people will zero in on the phrase, you know, you've got the sons of God that see the daughters of man. And they, they, they see a contrast morally between the two groups. So you have the sons of God that are righteous, and you have the daughters of man, you know, mankind and his morals and the, the unrighteous. So you have this unequally yoking taking place in marriage. That's a possibility. At the very least, I think that's a possibility. Another possibility that I think those three passages suggest is that you actually have angelic beings being immoral with physical people, which they were not supposed to be doing. Things were that bad. So at the least, you have morally different groups of people marrying each other, which you just shouldn't be doing, at the most, you have angelic beings being sensual with people, and you shouldn't be doing that. Go and study that at home. Okay, I've put the two ideas out in front of you. Either way, it's an illustration of how bad things had gotten on earth. And so in verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit 
shall not abide or will not continue to strive with man forever. You think about God in the middle of such an unholy people, and he's trying to get them to repent. And they just won't, and they just won't, and God is striving with them. Please listen. Please turn. Please stop. And they won't. And God says, I'm not going to do this for forever. Our God is a patient God. He doesn't want anyone to perish. But at some point, God says, that's enough, and I've got to act. So the rest of the verse says, he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And there are a couple of different ideas with that. One is that God, after chapter 5, where you see all of these patriarchs living centuries, God's like, nope, we're going to reduce man's lifespan. That's one possibility. Another possibility that seems more likely to me is God has just started a clock where he says in about 120 years, we're done. I'm going to strive with man for about 120 more years, and then I'm not, and judgment's coming. In the context of Genesis 6, that seems to make sense to me that he's giving them the warning for the flood. So in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. I think you have the same idea there. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is such a strong statement. I mean, you can look at most people and we try to encourage our kids to, to follow 1 Corinthians 13. Believe all things, hope all things. You know, think the best about people. Don't think the worst. Don't assume the worst. Because even someone who's making really consistently bad choices, there is some good in them. There's something redeemable in them. And what God is saying is everybody's horrible all the time. It's that bad. And verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. I do not think that this is describing God regretting making man. I think it's saying the same thing in both halves of that verse. When it says the Lord was sorry, it gave him sorrow. It gave him sorrow that he had made man because man had chosen to fall so far short of what he had made them for. And he'd been striving with them for so long to help them rise above what they had become and they weren't listening. You, you think about anybody that has a creative bone in their body when they go to work on something, you know, whether it's, it's someone who likes to quilt or whether it's a carpenter or whether it's a mechanic and they work on these things and they want these things to be beautiful and to function the way that they have imagined in their head and how frustrated they get when they come out flawed. God has created man in his image. They're supposed to be reflecting God here on earth and they just keep falling shorter and shorter and shorter of that. And I think verse six is so powerful because the way it emphasizes that through the sentence is it grieves him to his heart. God is not just some impersonal force. He's a person. And God feels perfectly. We feel imperfectly. And we, we experience our emotions in a broken way because we're not everything we ought to be yet. In Christ, those things are being perfected. But God feels every emotion perfectly. He feels anger perfectly. He feels sorrow perfectly. He feels joy perfectly. And mankind had chosen to fall so far short despite everything he was doing for them that it hurt him. 
You think about the, the New Testament equivalent of that verse over in Ephesians chapter 1, towards the end of that 14-verse um, eulogy praising the goodness of God, and he warns people, look, if you sin after being redeemed and after being stamped and sealed by the Holy Spirit, you will grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed. He says you will make the Holy Spirit hurt deep inside. So because of how far they had fallen and how consistently they had rejected him, verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man, animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And that phrase gets repeated a lot in the next couple of chapters, man, animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens. If you go back to Genesis 1, and, you know, we teach our kids the seven days of creation. Day one, day one, God made light, he just be. And you teach them what gets made on every day. This is the reverse order that they get made. Mankind was at the end. After animals, after creeping things, after birds, after fish. And, and I think what God is emphasizing is this. When my kids go and they build Lego sets, you start with the foundation and you build and then you build higher and then you build higher and then you build higher and then you build higher. And what's being described here is it's like God is taking his Lego set apart from the top down. He's disassembling what he had assembled. So it's this poetic destruction. And it's so bleak. And then you get to verse 8. But Noah... But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. Have you ever felt like you just didn't fit in? Like the closer you draw to Christ, the longer you love the Lord, the less you just fit. Hopefully the contrast is the less you just fit with the world. It should feel that way. But it's not, it's not pleasant. Do you remember what we read over in Hebrews chapter 11 as we got down to the end of the, end of the chapter? All of the things that those people of faith did. And it got down to the very end and it said, of whom the world is not worthy. That these people who live lives of faith, who place their faith in God, that put God first, they seek God with all that they have, they just don't fit. This world is not good enough for them. There's something better. And so there's this, there's this tension between those who follow God and those who think the world is enough. And so you've, you've heard people say, man, it's just not the good old days. It's not like it was in the good old days. Everybody thinks that their generation was the good old days. That we romanticize our childhoods. Like, we all do that. Honestly, what we're living through right now is nowhere near what Noah was living through. And if Noah was able to successfully raise a family in that mess, then we should be able to as well by faith and the grace of God. Right? So we're looking at Noah as an example of how to pursue faith in a hostile culture. Because if there was ever a hostile culture, it was Noah's. I'm not disagreeing. I think our culture is pretty hostile. And I frankly think that our culture is getting more hostile toward God and faith. But it's not as hostile as Noah's. So if, we can, if, if Noah can do it, then we can do it. We just need to follow the example of Noah. So now that we've set that up, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, 
and verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I'll read that one more time. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. What I'd like us to do tonight is I'd like us to look at that verse, and as we look at the various phrases, I'd like to make five points, five or six points, about pursuing faith in a hostile culture. Okay. The first is pretty obvious. We've already kind of touched on it when we reviewed our lesson from yesterday. You look at the verse, by faith, by faith Noah being warned by God. God spoke. You go through Genesis 6, and God spoke to Noah. And whenever I do this, I can't help but think of the Bill Cosby thing. Noah, what? You know. God got Noah's attention. And according to the earlier verses in chapter 6, God had been trying to get everyone's attention. He had been striving with people, trying to get them to turn. But Noah was the only one found blameless. So when God speaks, Noah hears. And that's the, that's the starting ground for faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of God came to Noah. But as you continue reading through Genesis 6, just like all these other examples, the word that God gave Noah was unprecedented. I want you to build a boat. Miles away from any body of water. And not just a dinghy, a floating zoo with a single door and we're going to load it up with two of every kind of animal because a global flood is about to reshape what you see. You know, we made the point with Sarah as we were talking about Sarah yesterday that God was trying to help Abraham and Sarah realize that he could do impossible things, that he was going to provide life from their dead bodies, that they were both past the point of bearing children. Their bodies were essentially dead is what the Romans writer says and the Hebrew writer says. But from those dead bodies, God created life. That's unprecedented. And God does it here too. I'm going to do an unprecedented thing. You don't know what this looks like. Like we have here in Kentucky, we have a great benefit. We can go to the Ark Encounter and go look at a life-size replica of the Ark and be like, man, that's amazing. And that makes sense. And yeah, and I could see how that would work. Noah didn't have that. He didn't know Ken Ham. All he had was God giving him measurements and construction techniques. And he wasn't, you know, it wasn't like he was some kind of boat builder. He hadn't done it before. But God spoke. And so as little sense as it made, Abraham had to think about the who who gave him the instruction. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. I've never, have you ever seen anything like this? And talk about the faith of Noah. Try being Mrs. Noah. Hey, honey, I'd like to build something in the backyard. A what? 
took a lot of faith on her part, to try to believe in something you can't even imagine, God's message might have appeared to be foolishness at the time. And to be able to do that, he's going to have to dedicate more than a century of his life to do it. Like, that's a long time. I have a hard time sticking with anything for 12 months. A century of building. But what Noah did, according to the Hebrew writer, is he believed God when he spoke. God said, do this, and this is why I want you to do this. And I know you've never seen anything like it, but faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He didn't have to see it. All he needed to know was who said it. You believe God when he speaks. The choice comes down to each of us, either to listen to or disregard God's word. On all these little things all day long. God said this, am I going to listen or am I not going to listen? Am I going to listen or am I not going to listen? God says to become baptized for the remission of your sins. Am I going to listen or not going to listen? He says a church should look a certain way. Am I going to listen or am I not going to listen? He, said, he says I'm supposed to be a good steward of my body. Am I going to listen or not going to listen? He says to exercise godly discipline. Am I going to listen or am I not going to listen? Second point. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. I think the point there is that you let faith drive reverent, reverent obedience. It must have looked so ridiculous to people as they walked by the Noah household. The sun is shining. They've never seen a flood before. And he's out there building an ark. Year after year, decade after decade, he must have looked so silly. And those who choose to believe God must look really foolish. Sometimes our, our faith must look like madness. We mentioned this yesterday. As the Israelites march around Jericho, that must have looked so silly. But they did it because that's what God called them to do. Think about what Jesus said over in 1 Corinthians as he's writing to that church and the divisions that they're going through, and he makes the point, look, the wisdom of God is, is considered foolishness to the world. But we're not trying to impress the world. Our lives are not going to make sense to those on the outside. It's going to look foolish. But we let faith drive reverent obedience. That doesn't mean that I get to get disrespectful and up in the grill of somebody who doesn't understand. Let me just give you a couple of examples. In Daniel chapter 1, we often go to Daniel and, and we look at this young man as he encounters his really big test of faith after being made a eunuch. And as a, as a young Hebrew man, he's presented with the delicacies of the Babylonians. But he's already convicted, he's already determined in his heart how he's going to handle that situation. And what he doesn't do is he doesn't flip the tray of food over and say, how dare you bring me this food? Don't you know I don't eat that? I am on a Hebrew diet. <sighs> That's not what he does. He very respectfully goes to the man in charge and says, hey, could we please not do this? And the guy very respectfully says, uh, yeah, we kind of sort of because if we don't, I'm dead. And so Daniel then goes respectfully to the person above him in the chain of command and says, hey, do we kind of sort of have to do this? Can I suggest a test? And he's respectful. 
What he's doing doesn't make sense to them, but he doesn't get disrespectful. He's respectful. You see similar things over in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Most of us are familiar with this passage. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. And I always thought, you know, when I was younger and in my teens, that the verse stopped there with a hard period. Because that's the only part of the phrase I heard people talk about. But that's the middle of a sentence. It starts back in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You make a defense for your faith, but you let it be reverent. You let it be gentle. God's people should not be, they should not be associated with explosive, out-of-the-control, impulsive language and tones of voice. I mean, I'm old enough that I attended several debates in high school where I'd go to a church and the church was debating some doctrinal subject and two different guys would get up and that was a fracas. There's usually one of the guys who doctrinally, I think, had a stronger argument, but it was really hard to be okay with that because they were eating each other alive. I mean, they might as well have insulted each other's mama because they did everything else but that. And that was so unholy. There was no gentleness and there was no respect. God's people should not be characterized by that kind of people. No one should say that that was okay. Thankfully, I'd like to hope that we've matured a little bit beyond some of that. But what the Hebrew writer is pointing out when talking about Noah is that's what Noah did. His faith drove reverent obedience. He just respectfully went about doing what God asked him to do. And look at the effect that it had. Go back. Go back to Hebrews 11 and verse 7, and it's still up there on the board. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, and I'm, I'm just not going to be done yet. I, I just can't. I just can't. We're going to go back to 1 Peter 3. Because the, the writer of 1 Peter makes a point that builds on this. Do you realize that fear is a worship word? It's a worship word. We are supposed to fear the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. If you go over to Proverbs chapter 1, especially verses 7 and 8. Fear is a worship word. And, and I understand that people made the point that the fear of the Lord is an abject terror. And I would agree that it's not identical but if you don't have some kind of abject terror when it comes to the Lord, something in your brain isn't working. I don't mean to be insulting, but I just want to make a couple of points. Like, what did the prophets do when they, when they caught a vision of God? They fell on their faces in the dirt. What did John do when he had the vision of Jesus 
over in Revelation, he fell down. What did Daniel do when he had the, the angel come to speak to him, a representative of God, not even God himself, and he falls down and the angel has to lift him up? There is an element of terror when you realize that you're communicating with the being that can breathe life into you and take it away. There is an element of that in there. But then there's also awe. Because he's so wise and so beautiful and so good. Right? And what, what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. He's saying, look, you're going to have to choose who you live in fear of. Either you live in fear and awe and worship of God, or you trade your worship of God for the fear and the worship and the awe of something else. And I'll make a suggestion that when we don't live by faith, we are captivated by fear of something or someone else. When we fall short of doing what God says, it's because we're more concerned with what someone else is going to say. And that's idolatry. No one and nothing else is God. So you think about Noah. Either he's going to displease God or he's going to displease his HOA. And he's not going to live in fear of his HOA. He may lose relationships. People may mock him. People may stop coming to his house, but he doesn't care. He would rather please God. We have too many people living gripped by the fear of man. We have too much of that. Just do what God calls us to do. And then look at the benefit. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. No other household got saved. Look, there were times, there were times when I was a kid that I can just remember being embarrassed by my parents. I remember it. Where my parents said, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to not do this. We're going to go here, we're going to not go there. We're going to watch this, we're going to not watch that. And I was like, but I won't fit in. Someone's going to make fun of me. Like, do I have to dress that way? Look, my dad, my dad and I went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth about untucked shirts. <laughs> and this was the rule. When we came to services, the shirt was tucked in. After services outside the building, I could untuck it. Guess where I always visited? 30 seconds after the amen, I'm outside and that shirt's untucked. For those who know me, most of the time I'm walking around with my shirt untucked. And my dad is not. And that's just such a little, little thing. But when your father is choosing to live by faith and listen to God that no one can see, and your buddies just don't get it, you can give grief to your parents. Dad, do we have to do that? Why do we have to be so different? My dad had nothing on Noah. I didn't have a hulking boat in my front yard. Like, Dad, do we have to be so different? Look at that thing. Every available Saturday, we're out there building that boat. Can I just go play soccer? Can I just, why do I have to keep putting tar on this thing and pitch? For over 100 years. But Noah was the only one 
who saved his family. No one else got on that boat. Because of Noah's faith and his reverent fear of God, the effect was there was a spiritual blessing for his family. Now, that doesn't guarantee anything, and I want to make sure that you understand that I'm not promising that. I'm not promising that if you live a perfect life of faith, that every single one of your kids is going to be, I'm not saying that, because they have to choose. All of Noah's children had to make a free will choice. Are we going to get on that boat with mom and dad or not? And they all made the choice to get on, but they weren't obligated, and Noah couldn't make them. But he increased the odds that they would do that because of his example. There was no silver bullet, but by his example, he did that. Trust that faith in God is best for your family. Trust that faith in God is best for your family. But it's going to make us so different. It doesn't matter. It's what's best for your family. People are going to make fun of me. It doesn't matter. It's what's best for your family. People are going to think we're weird. It doesn't matter. It's what's best for your family. Can we explode that a little bit? Make it bigger? It's what's best for your church. Our church is going to do by faith what God calls us to do. But people are going to think it doesn't matter what other people think. But this is a church that lives by faith. And if God calls us as a church to do something, that's what we're going to do. Because that's the only way to please God. Now, we're talking about faith in a hostile culture. Let's keep going. For the saving of his household, by this he condemned the world. This is just an unpleasant point, but it's a reality. And I'm grateful that the point is made. It's made in other passages that we're going to look at. By choosing to follow God, whether you say it or not, you're saying there's one way and the other 100 ways are wrong. It puts you at odds with the culture. And we live in a culture We live in a culture that says every way is right. Every way is equally valid. Every way is equally true. And that's just not true. And you'll be called unloving just for saying that. Like, and I'm not devaluing people's intellect and I'm not devaluing people's perspectives. But look, there is one God and and Jesus is his son and that's it. And when I say that, I am automatically saying nothing else is God and no one else is Jesus. And it puts us at odds. There was someone that was associated with Socrates. And had this conversation with Socrates. Socrates, I hate you. For every time I meet you, you show me what I am. He's like, I don't like being around you, Socrates. Because every time I'm around you and you reason with me, you reveal what a fool I am. Was that Socrates' goal? I'm going to wake up this morning to show that young guy that he is a fool. No. But just by who he was, the other young man was revealed to be foolish. Right? Someone said there is a danger in goodness because in its light, evil stands condemned. Why do you think Cain killed Abel? Abel lived a life of faith. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice, according to the Hebrew writer. Was Abel trying to show up Cain? No, he was just trying to do what God called him to do by faith. And because Cain chose not to, it made him look bad. And instead of fixing it, Cain did what a lot of people do and assassinated literally 
assassinated his brother for making him look bad. Now, we won't always go to that extreme, but we'll assassinate the character. We'll call those people quirky. We'll call those people weird. And instead, go, wait a minute. Are they just doing it better, and I need to learn to do it better? Think about 1 Peter 4. Turn over to 1 Peter 4. Peter said this to the Christians of the first century. We'll start reading in verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He means being willing to suffer in the flesh. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He's saying, look, if you're willing to suffer for righteousness' sake, it helps demonstrate that you're done with that. Verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You're saying, I am done letting my, my passions and my lusts rule me. Instead, God gets to rule me. Verse 3, for the time that is past, before I was a Christian, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He's not saying that it's okay. He's just like, you're on the other side of that. It's done now. You know, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. I think that that language is ironic. As we talk about the man who encountered the flood and God enabled him to survive the flood by faith was inundated. They were trying to challenge him, get carried away with sin, get carried. Instead of being delivered, we want you to get carried away with sin. And because you won't, they malign you. They make fun of you. They persecute you. Someone wrote it this way. When other people broke God's commandments, Noah kept them. When other people were deaf to God's warnings, Noah listened. When other people mocked God, Noah held him in reverence. And that, po that painted a stark contrast between Noah and his life of faith and those that didn't have it. In 2 Peter 2, verse 5, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness, a herald of righteousness. I love that word, herald. How many people were delivered through over a century of preaching? Eight. And God was pleased. That would be so discouraging. That'd be so discouraging. John just chuckled. I mean, think about the job that God gave to some of those men, some of those Old Testament prophets. Ezekiel just breaks my brain. I mean, God said, look, I'm going to send you to a people with a hard heart, with a mind like flint. They're not going to listen. Go. What's the point of that? Like, if no one's going to listen, why am I being sent? Because God's word has to go out. It has to go out. And people have to be given the choice, and they have to be given the opportunity. And one of the amazing things about Ezekiel is it wasn't just about the message going out to the people. God was working on Ezekiel. God was developing the faith of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a different man on the other side of all of that than he was at the beginning. 
And us as preachers need to think about that. We're changed through the process of just faithfully saying what God wants us to say, whether people respond or not. Just really quick. There's our fourth point. Now I'm going to change it. Believing in God puts you at odds with the culture. Faith requires endurance. It's not stated in verse 7, but it's implied. Because when you go back and you start doing the math, the flood begins in Genesis 7 and verse 6, and Abraham is 600 years old. When you go back to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, based on that timeline that God gives, you've got this little 120-year clock that starts. Noah doesn't have children according to the genealogies until he's 500. So God makes a promise about him delivering his family 20 years before the family comes along. And he gets busy doing it. But then he has to do it for 120 years. That takes endurance. Living a life of faith takes endurance. One more point, and the lesson is yours. Look at how the, the verse ends. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He inherited something. And what he inherited is he inherited a right relationship with God. And you're like, oh, but it uses the word righteousness. And we're going to talk about that. For those who have known me for any length of time, I talk about this a lot. And everyone in the room under the age of 20, I want you to pay attention really, really, really closely because I have to have this conversation with people over 20 all the time. So if you get this now, it's going to save you time. Okay? The word righteousness is used two different ways. The first way that we think about it is doing right. And that's right. That's correct. There are places in the Bible where the word righteousness is used to communicate doing right. So you think about uh, a verse like Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. The concept is there where Paul told the Ephesian church, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, for righteousness. So those who are in Christ have been fashioned by God to finally do what he meant for them to do, which is right things. Okay. So that in that sense, righteousness means doing right. But there's another sense that I don't think we talk about enough or early enough. And it has to do with being right. Being right with God. So over in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. He's saying, seek first God and a right relationship with God. That's your ultimate priority in life. Take care of that first. Pursue right standing with God. That's the way the word righteousness is used. One of the clearest passages, in my opinion, that it has that definition of righteousness is Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3, where the first 11 verses, Paul is addressing these Judaizing teachers that think you have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. And he's like, that is just not correct. And he says, I gave up all these things and all these rites and all of these rituals that didn't benefit me. Verse 8, 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's not saying doing right things. He's saying being in a right relationship. Being found in him, not having a right relationship of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the right relationship from God that depends on faith. So this is the question. Kind of like chicken and egg. So which comes first? Doing right or being right? Being right. You will never do enough right to be right with God. That's called self-righteousness all day long. So there, I've met people that are like, I'm just, I haven't done enough good yet. I haven't fixed enough things yet. You will never do enough good yet, ever. What you need to do, like Saul, when he realized it and became Paul, is I just need to be right I need to be right, and I need to be right right now. And then once I'm right with God, he'll start creating me to do right. And I think we get the cart before the horse. And I tried to say this about baptism yesterday. Baptism is not another opportunity to do right. Baptism, because of your faith in what God is doing and, and your faith in what Christ has done, is what you're what you're engaging in in order to be right. Because as you go through that whole process, you can't brag about a single piece of your conversion. You've heard the word of God and you've heard the gospel of Jesus and you've made a decision to believe in it. And because of what God has said and what God has done through Christ, as you go through the process that God has come up with, because it was his plan, then God works on you during that conversion process in the water that someone else is performing on you and when they bring you up out of the water, not you stand up on your own and do a high five, when they bring you up out of the water, God has accomplished a work for you. And then you're right with him. And after that, you can proceed to be made more into the image of Christ and you're created a new workmanship to do good. So if you were to stand before God, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and you're a Christian and he says, why should I let you into heaven? Well, because I got baptized, I did it right. Is baptism essential? Yes. But it's not because you did it right. It's because by faith you responded and God did something when you responded. You stand before him because of God's grace and mercy and the completed work of Jesus Christ. Right? I know I said right so many times. Faith makes you an heir of God. You have a relationship with God. You are made right with God. And Noah was by his faith. So the question this evening is, do you acknowledge that we're in a hostile culture? Because we are. And thank God it's not as bad as Noah's. It's not. There are still people seeking God and looking for God and responding to God. In Noah's day, they'd all stopped. 
We live in a much better culture than Noah's. I'm not saying it's great, but it's better. And we have opportunity to pursue faith. And it's going to look different and people are going to mock us, but that's okay as long as God is pleased and we've responded to God. So believe God when he speaks and let faith drive reverent obedience. Trust that faith in God is what's best for your family. Be prepared that it's going to put you at odds with some people. Some people are not going to like you, and you've just got to accept that. Faith requires endurance, and faith makes you an heir of God. If you are not yet a child of God, you are not yet a disciple in Christ, we've already talked about how you can become one. You can be baptized into the family of God. You can be baptized into the church of God. If you're already a member of God's family, but you realize you haven't been living by faith, you've been living in fear of other things, repent of that. Just repent of that. And put God first. Be in awe of God. Maybe what you need to do is to go back through and be reminded of who God is so that you're more in awe of him than you are right now. Let's be more like Noah. And if there's anybody that needs to respond and ask for prayers of encouragement, please let us know by coming to the front while we stand and sing the song that's been selected for us.